Welcome to the Victory Life Church Podcast. We believe it's important to present an uncomplicated and uncluttered view of Christ and how we should live. We hope this podcast inspires you and helps build your faith. If you ever find yourself in the area, come check us out. For more information on services and events, visit us at vlcministries.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at VLC Plantation. As we get to Romans chapter 9, this is one of the most difficult passages or chapters in the Bible. So I want to make a disclaimer right off the bat that um, I don't know it all. Okay? But there are some important things to discover in chapter 9, so I want to zoom out and not try to zoom in and look at all the details. In the book of Romans, you know that we have been talking about um, salvation. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about what? They talk about that man is sinful. Again, we just talked about this just now. The whole world is corrupt. The Bible says everyone is liars, murderers, adulterers. Everyone has sinned. Everyone is condemned. And everyone faces judgment. Wow, it seems like a lot of bad news. But that's not the news. The gospel is good news. But you have to understand the bad news before you get to the good news. And then chapters 4 through chapter 7 unwrap God's redemptive plan, and he makes it very clear how we don't have to face judgment, how we will not have to be condemned for our rebellion against him. He makes it very clear when he uses Abraham, the father of the Hebrew faith, when he said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited his account as righteousness. You cannot see God unless you obtain righteousness. And the only way to obtain righteousness is to confess your sins to God. I'm a sinner. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he hung on the cross for your sins. God brought judgment on him instead of you and me. And when we believe in him, we are adopted into God's family. We are joined heirs with Jesus. We have citizenship in heaven. He becomes our father. Jesus is our savior. That's talked about in Romans chapter 4 through 7. And then some people believe Romans 8 is one of the best chapters in the Bible. After hearing, how am I going to live out this struggle I have between the flesh and the spirit? Romans 8 clearly spells out that when the Holy Spirit comes in you, he gives you the power to live And be a slave unto righteousness rather than a slave unto sin. And then he helps us understand how secure we are in him. Then we get to Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11. And it seems to kind of turn the corner into a different subject. But then in chapter 12 through 16... God teaches us how we live out this new life in Christ. Chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. But chapters 9 through 11 seem to talk about a different subject matter. As we enter into this message, I want to call it Promises Delivered and Promises Kept. Remember, we're teaching the book of Romans, how to live God's way. 
I want to start with a little story about promises delivered and promises kept from Daily Bread. Uncle Arthur, do you remember the day you took me in the barbershop and the supermarket? I was wearing tan khakis, a blue plaid Oxford shirt, a navy blue cardigan, brown socks, and brown Rockport shoes. The date was Thursday, October 20th, 2016. <laughs> My nephew, Jared's autism-related challenges are offset by his phenomenal memory that can recall details like days and dates and, and the clothes he was wearing year after year or years after the event took place. Because of the way he is wired, Jared possesses the kind of memory that reminds me of the all-knowing, loving God, I'm continuing, the keeper of time and eternity. He knows the facts, and he won't forget his promises to his people. He said, have you had memories when, or moments when you have questioned whether or not you have been forgotten by God? Ancient Israel's less-than-ideal situation caused her to say, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me, both in the Old Testament and in the writings of Paul. In the gospel that brings forgiveness, God has clearly said, I will not forget you. God is faithful, faithful to his promises, faithful to Israel, and he will be faithful to you, end of quote. Remember, God keeps his promises. By the way, do you know how many verses there are in the Bible? There are over 23,145 verses in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there are 7,957 verses. Put them together, you have over 30,000 verses. Guess how many verses are God's promises? There are over 7,000 promises that God has made to his people and his children. And God keeps his promises, unlike our politicians. I, I promise I wouldn't get political, and I won't. So Romans 9 through 11 is really, truly about divine faithfulness to his promises. That's what Romans 9 through 11 is about. And the question that has been presented to Paul, and he's writing about it, has God forsaken Israel? By no means, Paul tells him. And Paul uses himself as an example. He's a Hebrew. He's a Jew. Even though it looks like Israel, and they did as a nation, rejected God's redemptive plan, rejected Jesus, but yet Paul is one of those, and yet he believed. So there is hope. He is faithful to his promises. Did God break his promise to Israel? Because there, there are not a lot of Jewish people accepting this message. There were probably one to two point million people living in Jerusalem at that time, and it seemed like very few in comparison were accepting the message. So since, since our forefathers and our religious leaders have not rejected the message, 
Has God rejected them or has he been unfaithful to his promise to Israel? So what is chapter 9 and 11 all about? Chapter 9 deals with God's promises to Israel in their past. He kept them. Chapter 10 deals with how God's promises are impacting Israel in the present as Paul was speaking to them. And chapter 11 deals with God's promises of Israel in her future. And we're going to be covering that. Again, God has not revoked his promises. And so Romans 9, 30-32 kind of reminds us exactly what Paul is doing and what he's heading to. He spells it out in Romans 30-32. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. This is a subject matter that he's confronting in 9, 10, and 11. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because it did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. So let's look, first of all, that of God's promises. God's, God promised to love his people. We see that in verse 1 through 5 in Romans 1 through 5. Romans 9, 1 through 5. God has always promised to love his people. Remember, he's speaking through Paul, so don't think Paul's better than Jesus. He's speaking through Paul. Here's what Paul says about his people. He's not speaking about the Gentiles. He's not speaking about everyone else in the world. He's speaking to Israel specifically, even though the letter was written to the Romans. And yes, he does confront all believers. But then he zeroes in and he focuses in on his people, Israel. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed be now and forever. God is working through Paul and reminding the Israelite people, I have loved you. And he promised to love them, and he promises to love us. God promises to never forsake you and me, and he promised that he would never forsake them. We see that spelled out in the Gospels. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would never perish but have everlasting life. So he has not forsaken them, nor has he forsaken us, nor has he forsaken Israel, even when he went in there on Palm Sunday. And he said, oh, Israel, oh, Israel, how I would have, I love you so much. I love you this much. Like a mother hen does her chicks, I would have loved to gather you under my wings like a mother hen does her chicks. He is communicating through Paul. Yes, I love Israel. 
No, I have not forsaken them. They have forsaken me. Proof of his love? Well, he entrusted them. He elected them to be bearers of these things spelled out in Romans 4. They were a privileged people, using that word properly in context. They were a privileged people. Look it. Look what happened to Israel. Out of all the nations in the world, and God didn't reject all the other nations in the world, but he elected Israel for a special privilege and task. What was that task? It spelled out clearly. To them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belonged all the patriarchs came through, not through Ishmael, not through Esau, but came through Isaac and Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. The Messiah came through them. Think of the privileges that Israel had. They saw God do more things than any other nation in the world. They saw his miraculous hand. They were a privileged people to be able to enjoy the kingdom of God coming down on earth more than any other nation in the entire world since then. What a privilege they had. But Israel was unfaithful. And they were cut off temporarily. But that does not negate this blessing or the promises that were first brought through that blessing to his elect nation. He reminds us in Romans 3, what if, we're, what if some were unfaithful? They were unfaithful. Many of us are unfaithful throughout the world. Does, does their faithlessness nullify, this is the big question, and he answers at the end of Romans 9, does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. No, in other words. Let God be true and every man a liar. Boy, does God love Israel. That's why it behooves every one of you here to fall in love with Israel. Because he has a plan for them still. I like what one pastor said. I support and love Israel not because I agree with all their politics. But because I'm in agreement with the covenants that God made with Israel. Amen? Boy, I would not want to be on the wrong side of the fence in opposing Israel like most of the world has. You have to ask yourself, why in the world are all the nations of the world against Israel? Hmm. And I would not want to be voting against them because remember what God told Abraham, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. But God loved Israel. By the way, has he not loved the United States of America? Probably second to only Israel, we were entrusted with the good news of the gospel. What a great nation we belong to. I'd like to see these activists run up to God and say, God, your nation stinks. 
Look at all the people that were killed and wiped out and all these nations. You, you started off this nation in a wrong way, so the nation, in my eyes, is no good. Imagine them walking up to God, telling him that. This country was founded on biblical principles, our first universities, our schools, our hospitals. It permeates our culture, but our culture wants to kick out God in everything that we do and say. What a great nation we belong to. We spread the gospel to almost every corner of the world. We send missionaries all over the place. We have been a privileged nation spiritually. Wow. God still loves these Romans and these Jewish people. Here's what he said in Romans 1.16. Remember, this is where the gospel starts, Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul is saying, for it is the power of God for salvation, oh, key word, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is in Romans chapter 1. Again, he lays out soteriology does, began in chapter 1. Actually, it began in Genesis and makes its way all through Revelation. It is impossible to start with Romans chapter 9 and spring from there and begin to talk about the doctrine of soteriology and come to conclusions about the study of salvation. It began in Romans chapter 1. Actually, it began in Genesis. It began with Abraham and it began with Adam. But the actual subject of salvation that you need to know about, I need to know about, your children need to know about, your co-workers need to know about, is spelled out so clearly in Romans chapter 1 through chapter 8. How one can get right with God. And Paul said everyone who believes can make their peace with God. He loves them. He loves them. The second point I'd like to bring out this morning is that he keeps his promises in verses 6 through 13. Let's look at that. He has kept his promise to Israel. And if, he's, if he's kept his promises to Israel, he'll keep his promises to you and me, especially about our salvation. He said, but it isn't as though the word of God has failed because basically you've rejected it and hardened your hearts. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had nothing, done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, because of him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. One of the big challenges here is this is the place that seems to divide Christianity. 
Has God in eternity past decided on his own, determined who gets in and who doesn't? And then there's the other half of Christianity that disagrees with that and believes that for God so loved the whole world and Romans chapter 1 that I just read, everyone who believes in the gospel message has a chance. That's the big argument. But again, I, I think sometimes we get lost in the forest for the sake of the trees. We, we begin examining and dissecting doctrine when that's not necessarily what Romans 9 is all about. The subject matter is Israel. And so many in the camp that believes that God selected people in eternity past who's going to be saved build their doctrine on about five, six things spelled out in Romans chapter 9. And and I'm going to at least share with you why I struggle with that. It reminds me of Revelation. I have my doctorate in Revelation. And yet I feel the more I know, the less I know. I can tell you all the four views of, or the major views of how you should teach and preach Revelation. Is Jesus coming back before the seven-year tribulation? Is he coming back in the middle? Is he coming back somewhere where the view of God's wrath is near the end? Is he coming back at the very end, post-tribulation? I have to confess to you, I don't know. I can tell you all the views. I can kind of tell you where I lean. And I've switched that, by the way, in the 30 years I've been in the ministry. I went to seminary in 1983 and continued my education. And I remember being ordained in one of the largest churches in Louisiana. And the first question they asked me when they were going to ordain me, Pastor Ron, what's your view on eschatology? Eschatology is the study of last things. I was confused at that time. And I said, well, I'm a pantheologist. You know what that is, right? It's all going to pan out in the end. (laughs) The next question was, I'm I'm getting ready to go. You know, this big old church and all these smart wizards, these theologians. I'm ready for all the questions. Come on. I've been studying for three years. Hit me. Went to college and majored in religion there. Come on. Well, Pastor Ron, if, if, if you had a man that wanted to be a deacon in the church and I like to have a little nip once in a while, would you let him be a deacon in the church? I said, well, I'm, I'm, no, I didn't, I didn't do that. I said, what do you mean, once a week, twice a week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, no problem. What? They refused to ordain me that night because of my answers. I get a telephone call from the pastor who I'm I'm friends with, not real buddy-buddy, but we play tennis together. Maybe because I whipped him a couple times, he didn't like me. No, I'm just teasing. I don't remember who won or lost. But so we had a friendship. He said, didn't I teach you anything in in all these years? And I took meticulous notes. I went to service Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I mean, I took notes, meticulous notes on every one of his sermons. Didn't I teach you anything? He wanted me to agree with him. I went back the next day for ordination, and I, 
Again, the second round. They don't usually do that. Not all my education is bearing on whether they're going to prove me or not to get ordained so I can go to my first church who is ready to call me to be their pastor in Alabama. And uh, so I shared my testimony. They ordained me. And when I walked to the line and shook the men's hands, they said, listen, thank you for not giving the answers that the pastor wanted, but you spoke from your heart what you believed. That was a little long story to share with you. Please allow me to express what I believe. I have to. I've got to come to some type of conclusion of what I believe about this. And so you're going to hear it, whether you like it or not. <laughs> so as we go into Romans, I, I see some things that I want to talk about, especially in verse 6 through 8. Let's go back there now and recap, especially this part, 6 through 8. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Again, remember the, the Israelites are wondering what happened to God's promises to them that he was going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem when they were going to reign together over all the nations of the world. And then he goes, for not all who were descendants from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now, I want to say something about this promise. I do believe in chapter 9, the subject matter of soteriology, the sovereignty of God, election, predestination, is in there. But I do not believe it is the dominant subject matter. I believe there is a bigger picture. And the bigger picture is the promise that God made to Israel through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob. It's talked about here. Paul is talking about two things. Israel's national election for divine purposes. And he is talking about the subject of salvation. But he's not talking about soteriology alone. It is not the dominant subject, individual salvation. In chapter 9, I have concluded Let me give you a little bit of proof of that. Some people, again, believe Abraham. God said it's through Abraham's seed, through Isaac and Jacob, that this, not that everyone's going to be saved just through that seed, but that the plan of redemption is going to come via Isaac and and Jacob, not through Ishmael and not through Esau. So does that mean everybody through the promised line of Isaac and Jacob are saved? And everybody that's not a part of that promise promise are lost. So I'm going to prove to you it's not about salvation here because I'm going to go back to the promise line and remind you what 2 Chronicles 12 teaches. You're thinking everybody through the promised seed now is talking about all those who are saved, and I'm going to tell you you're wrong. And I'll prove it to you. Second Chronicles 12, 13 reminds us of a king, Rehoboam. Now, when you go to chapter uh, 1 of Matthew, you will see a long lineage line, right? Tracing Jesus all the way back to King David, to Abraham. And you would expect in that line of the promise, of the promised seed, that they would all be believers, Okay, well, let's look at Check this out. This is just one individual. In 2 Chronicles 12, 13, 
So King Rehoboam, he's Solomon's son, established himself in Jerusalem and reigned. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. He reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nema, the Ammonite. Now, he, the king, did evil. He was in the line, the promised seed. He was the king. He's in Matthew. He did evil and did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Based on that and some others, I do not believe that Abraham, a God is, or Paul is talking about salvation when he's saying to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, from your line, the promise I gave you, the promise seed that the Messiah is going to come through your line. But that doesn't mean everybody through that line will be believers. So I believe in this passage, he's not just talking about, when he's talking about children of God, he's talking about those who are going to be saved. Now let me flip it around and remind you that the promise was not given to Ishmael, Abraham's first son. The promise was not given to Esau, uh, Isaac's first son. So does that mean all those people are not going to get saved? And he's talking about salvation in this passage? Let me share this with you. There are many that were not a part of the promised seed that are over here that became believers. Let me give you a couple of them. Two women that are in the genealogical line or in the lineage in Matthew. Who are they? You have Rahab, Rahab, the Canaanite woman, vowed enemies of God. He can't be talking about salvation in this passage. What about another lady in the lineage? Ruth. Oh, how we love the book of Ruth. Do you know what tribe she belonged to? A Moabite. The Moabites came from Lot's. From Ishmael came the Arabs. From Esau came the Edomites. All vowed enemies of God, but yet they became believers. So when someone goes to this passage and begins to build the case about soteriology and saying that before the foundations of the world in eternity past, God has begun to build the case to tell you how he works out salvation for all mankind in chapter 9, I would have to disagree with that. Now, let me continue in this chapter as I believe many begin to build brick upon brick upon brick from these following verses. Let's go to verse 9. For this is what the Lord promised. Again, he promised and he delivered. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. That was a miraculous birth, by the way, Isaac. Conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born, here's some key verses, and had done nothing good or bad. People are thinking we're talking about individual salvation right here. I have a hard time understanding it that way, and I'll tell you why. I already began to build my case. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Okay, so the beginning build their case. And I want to give you some reasons why I don't believe, again, he's talking about individual salvation. 
They make a beeline that the older will serve the younger. And, of course, that is spelled out in Genesis 25. God made this promise, and he delivered. The older will serve the younger. Here we go. Genesis 25, 23. And the Lord said to her, Rebecca, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And so people make a beeline beginning to build their case, saying, well, see, in eternity past, before they did good or bad, notice in the verse it says, before they did good or bad, before they were born, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who called, she was said, this is going to come to pass, that the older will serve the younger. And many people make a beeline that this is talking about salvation. Jacob I've loved, and Esau I've hated. God decided to select Israel for privilege, special privilege. It reminds me of the Olympics. Do you know who lit the, the, the uh, flame, the Olympic flame? I believe her name was Naomi Osaka. Naomi Osaka. Now, there are a lot of people involved in this whole process of lighting the flame. It goes all the way back to March. And then, actually, that day, the, the torch is passed from one great athlete to another. And the athletic committee in, in Japan decides who is going to be selected for this privilege. And she is one of the, the best-known athletes from my research in Japan, she's a great tennis player, and they selected her to light the flame. Now, was everybody else chopped liver? They were great athletes themselves. But no, God selected Israel for a special purpose and privilege. And he selected Jacob before the foundations of the world to carry this out. Now I'm going to unravel this, Esau I've hated, and Jacob I've loved, that will help you once again understand that I do not believe he's talking about individual salvation, but something greater. He said, Esau I have hated, and Jacob I've loved. Whenever I have a difficulty understanding a passage, I was taught in seminary that you always go to other passages in the Bible that talk the same way, use the same verbiage or nouns, and try to find out what God is saying. Esau, I've hated. Hmm, where have I heard that word before? So I go to Luke chapter 14, where I've heard that before, from none other than Jesus himself, God in the flesh. He said this, if you want to follow me, he said, you must hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. And he said, you even have to hate your own life. Now, we know, is he contradicting himself? He said in the Ten Commandments that you shall honor your father and mother. In fact, if you cursed your mom and dad, you could have been stoned to death in the Old Testament. Is God saying, is Jesus saying in that passage, hate your mom and dad, hate your brother and sister, hate your uncles and aunts. When on the cross, Jesus forgave his enemies and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What is he saying? You and me can definitely conclude there are idioms that we use and that the Hebrews use and we use. If I said, she almost bit my head off, 
Did she? Or you're looking for a job and I'm going to hit the streets running. Does that mean you actually hit the streets? So when Jesus is saying, hate your mother and father in order to be my follower, what is he saying? And one could conclude from all, reading all the Gospels that Jesus is saying, I must be first. Would you agree with me on that? Can I hear some amens? So he's saying, I must be first. So basically in this passage, he's not talking about salvation or soteriology. He is basically saying that I prefer Jacob over Esau. And I decided that. I predestined that. I determined that. Yes, all that is in Romans 9 in eternity past. It wasn't based on any good or bad that they've done. It cannot be that he hated Esau because, and because Esau was blessed. Remember when the rendezvous after 20 years of leaving his brother after he tricked him? And if anybody was bad, Esau was. He was a con artist. And they got back together, and God had blessed Esau tremendously, and he had blessed Jacob also. And they embraced. They were not enemies, and neither did Esau serve Jacob. He never served them. So you have to go to this passage and say, what is it talking about? They take this passage from Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, 1,500 years after the promise of Genesis 25, after Israel had forsaken God, and the whole chapter in Malachi is all about God forsaking them. I mean, excuse me, about the, the Jewish people forsaking them. And this passage is brought up in this context. By then, the Edomites were vowed enemies of God, Esau's descendants, but not Esau himself. And by then, the Moabites were avowed enemies of God, Lot's descendants. And by then, of course, Ishmael's descendants, the Arabs, were avowed enemies of God. So there's a lot that goes into this, this, this phrase, Esau I've hated and Jacob I've loved. And, and for you to make a beeline and say, you know what, in eternity past, before anybody did good or bad, see, God chose uh, uh, Jacob over Esau to be his child. Doesn't make sense. Now the case keep, continues to build. Now there's another case they make in the next passage in verse 15 and 16. Let's look at it. He said, I will have mercy on who I'll have mercy. See there? See there? God decides in eternity past who he's going to have mercy on and who he's not. They're continuing to build that case. Before in eternity past, God chose Jacob over Esau. See? Before they did good or bad. See? He decides who's going to get saved and who isn't. It's not based on our works, which we know that. But then I will be merciful to who I'll be merciful to. In verse 16, he said to Moses, I will have mercy on who I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on who I will have compassion. So it does not depend on human will or exertion. But on God who is merciful. Is he talking about salvation here? Where does this quote come from? Is he talking about God choosing some people to be saved and he'll have mercy on some people and other people he won't? I don't believe it is saying that. This is taken from Exodus chapters 32, 33, and 34. 
And in that, in, in, in that situation, remember, Israel has experienced the glory of God. This Red Sea parted. All the Egyptian army died. By then, they've seen manna come from heaven and quail float right in their face, and they don't have to go hunting for it, and they've seen water come out of a rock. And then Moses goes up into the mountains to receive the Ten Commandments from God, and he was gone a long time, 40 days and 40 nights. And Israel is, is, is in the wilderness wandering down in the valley what's happened to Moses, and they thought he died. They get impatient. They didn't wait upon God. Reminds me of Saul, and it reminds me of Mary and Martha. They decided to tell Aaron, listen, Moses is dead. We need another God. The second commandment says you shall have no idols, remember? And what did they do? They took all their silver and gold and put it together, and out came a calf, a golden calf. There's your God that brought you out of Egypt. And they began to worship Moses comes down off the mountain, he and Joshua, oh my goodness, there was a big discussion between God and Moses, God's going to wipe out Israel altogether, Moses goes to bat, it isn't that Moses was better than God, God just allows us to see him in man, and in man caring for people like Paul's caring for Israel, Moses cares for his people, please don't do that God, please, God agrees, he comes down the mountain. He throws the Ten Commandments down on the ground. They break, and he sees what happens. God decided to bring judgment. He could have brought judgment on all these people that already hardened their hearts, already rebelled against them. After all the miracles they saw God do, after miracle, after miracle, after miracle, you'd think they would be totally devoted to God. They rebelled against him, and he took 3,000 of those re rebels and he killed them and had mercy on the rest of them. That's what the subject is about here, not salvation. They continue to build their case. They, those that believe that God selects people who are going to be saved and not saved, on the hardening of the heart, Pharaoh. Let's read that in verse 17 and 18. In 17 and 18, it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So the case continues to build that God decides who's going to be saved, who's not going to be saved in eternity past. He has mercy on who he wants to have mercy, and then he hardens hearts so they can't get saved. Well, let's revisit the story again about Pharaoh before you come to that conclusion. The, the, the story of Pharaoh in Exodus 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, in that, in that ballpark, remember, he begins to see the glory of God like Israel did, and Moses approaches him. And says, let my people go. <laughs> Who is your God that I should serve him? The hardening begins. It spells it out, actually, in Exodus 7, 22, Exodus 8, 15, after the frog miracle, Exodus 8, 32, after the flies, Exodus 9, 7, after the livestock all die, and Exodus 9, 34, the scripture says, Pharaoh 
harden his heart after all the evidence and the glory and the power of God. I will not believe. I will not serve you, God. And his heart was hardened. And everyone accuses God of hardening his heart. Read the story. Read the story. Then God takes that hard heart who rebelled against him and he makes sure that it stays hard so that he is glorified because somebody, even in the hardness of their heart, it reminds me of the story in the New Testament where the, 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 the lady comes knocking on the door of the home of the judge and he doesn't want to answer the door at all. And the scripture says he didn't fear God and he didn't fear man, but so that he'd get this nagging woman off his doorstep, he gave her what she wanted. So some good came out of this, this judge. That's exactly what God didn't want to happen after the two, three, four miracles and Pharaoh hardened his heart. He wanted to make sure, good and sure, that he didn't all of a sudden say, okay, I don't serve God, I don't believe in him, but I'm going to let you guys uh, you know, go out for a few days and maybe come back. Whatever he decided he was going to do. God made sure his predetermined plan that he would be glorified in the world. And just think about it. That story has been told for over 3,000 years, what God did through Pharaoh. Then God hardened his heart. In other words, Pharaoh was stupid and got stupider, and now the whole world knows about how stupid he was when he decided to go up against God. And God allowed the hardening of his heart to take place. <laughs> remember the passage that God sits in the heavens and laughs at our attempt to fight him? Do you remember that passage found in Psalms 2? Let me read it for you, okay? It's not on the board. Why do the nations rage and people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against me, against the Lord, and against his anointed, that's prophetic, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's, let's, let's clip the chains that bind us, that God's our creator. He sits in the heavens and laughs. You wonder where you got laughter from? God created laughter. He laughs. <laughs> Look what these peons are trying to do. Now, he's not looking down at us in the sense that he doesn't love us. He already proved to you and me that he loved us by dying on the cross for us. But when we come up with those kind of shenanigans, he laughs. He sits in the heavens and laughs. So God was glorified by Pharaoh's stupidity in a big way. And the Jewish people in our Lord's day did the exact same thing. They saw the miracles of God, and they began hardening their hearts and hardening their hearts to when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. The Scripture says the religious leaders left and counseled together how they might kill him. Hmm. Don't say God hardened our hearts. He's not responsible for evil and sin. He is not evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Even you can harden your heart. So as you're listening to this message this morning, I want to remind you about Hebrews 3, to be careful that you don't sit here this morning or you're looking in on this message this morning, that you do not harden your heart. You can do the same thing Pharaoh did. Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart 
leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort another one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice and do not harden your heart. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do you see how down through the corridors of history, men hardened their hearts? People sit and hear the gospel, and they have a chance to believe or not to believe, to accept or not accept the gospel message. There's another one, but for the sake of time, I can't get into the, the potter and the clay. But basically, if you go to Jeremiah chapter 18, it talks about some vessels that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, and he made something honorable and something dishonorable of, of Israel because of what they did. He didn't design that before they rebelled. It was after they rebelled that they became vessels of honor and dishonor, just like Pharaoh did. And so, in Jeremiah 18, for example, while God is equated with the potter, God calls upon Israel to turn from her wicked ways and obey his voice so that they, as the pot which God is fashioning, will not be marred. That's Jeremiah 18, 8 through 11, when you have a chance, look that up. So God calls upon Israel to come into conformity to the work of his hands, what he designed them for. They'd be the torchbearers of the plan of redemption they were supposed to do. We know which line it came from. We know which line Jesus was supposed to come from. That was their responsibility. It didn't guarantee all of them would be saved. And anyone who was not of the promised line were not saved. That's not what he's talking about in Romans 9. If they do not, they will become marred and he will have to reform the clay again into another vessel. He does not destroy or discard the clay. He simply forms it into another pot which will be used for a different purpose. Again, none of this has anything to do with whether a person goes to heaven or hell after death. The way a vessel is used refers primarily to how God uses individuals, kings, and nations in this life. All this adds up to God keeps his promises. And I want to end by, on this. God, God's promise of righteousness for them in the past, for those Paul's speaking to in Rome, those Jews, those Hebrews, and you and me today, the promise of righteousness still stands. Since he kept his promise to come to the line of Isaac and Jacob, all the way down through the corridors of history. By the way, in our Lord's time, you could trace Jesus' descendants all the way back. But when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, it is impossible for someone to come along today and say they're Messiah and us trace his descendants all the way back to King David, all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to David. It's impossible. That's another miracle. He kept his promise to Israel and to use them. Some Jews are being saved because of 
their rejection overall as a nation of Jesus, now the Gentile world, which was God's plan all along. And he made that promise to Abraham when he said, I will bless the other nations of the world through you. They forgot about their responsibility. Please let us not forget our responsibility as ambassadors to take the light of the gospel into the homes, into the workplace, into the schools, out there in society. He did not reject them. They rejected him. Romans 11 reveals that. I ask in 11.1, has God rejected his people? No, he hasn't. But he said this in Romans 11.25, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel because of what they hand to God. He hardened their hearts. He had a plan all along what he was going to do with that until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, until all the Gentiles from all the other nations are saved. And in this way, all Israel will be saved that this is written. That's why we don't write off Israel. They became a nation in 1948. Wow, we have witnessed one of the greatest miracles in our time, one of the greatest promises being fulfilled in our time from the Bible. So salvation is for everyone who pursues it by faith. That's exactly what most of the Jewish people were not doing. They were trying to do it by works. And by the way, it's not being born as a Christian or a Hebrew that gets you right with God. That's what he was explaining when he said, not all Israel are Israels or are Israelis. Not because you're a Christian. 70, over 70-something percent in our country claim they're Christians. Do you believe that? <laughs> not for a moment. Just because you claim you're a Christian or that's the religion you claim doesn't make you a believer and that you're going to be with God. It's not found in your goodness or in the law, thank God, because we all know we're not good sometimes. It's not found in religious rites, rituals, or rule following. Aren't you glad for that? Because all of us broke the rules. You can be saved even though you messed up and did not follow all the rules. Jesus said, here it is, including, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then we have that lovely passage in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that we're so familiar with. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works. The Jewish people were pursuing it by works. Many people in America are pursuing it by works. People all over the world are pursuing it by works. But he said, you're not saved by works. It's not by your works or your doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one could boast. Remember, again, Romans 1.16, that trumps Romans 9, where it is limited some, from some people's view how many people can be saved. Romans 1 and Romans 10, in the letter to the Romans says otherwise. He said, for again, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who? To some people. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In Romans 10, one of my favorite passages when I'm teaching people how to become a believer, I end with Romans 10, 13. What does it say? All who call upon the Lord shall be saved. He said that. I didn't say it. So, listen, could I be wrong like Revelation? And could I be misinterpreting chapter 9 of Romans? It's possible. I'll admit that. I'm not the final authority. God's Word has the final authority. But if I were to err, 
if I, and I were to cheat you, if I were to err and pretend I, there's a, a teeter-totter and there, there's evidence that God saves only a few and all the rest he designed to go to hell. And, and then the others, uh, we believe that there's, we, we, everyone has a chance if they hear the gospel or they look up in creation and see the handiwork of God and call upon him. Remember, Jesus and God are one. I'd rather err on teaching you, hey, believe that everyone has a chance. I didn't make that up. That's what the scripture says. So if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on that. And I wish you would err with me. Would you stand at this time, please? Took a little longer than usual. Maybe to some of you have rambled. Maybe some of you could care less about this. <laughs> some of may have went over your head. Some I didn't go deep enough. I probably spent 45 to 60 hours on this trying to decide, God, how do I glorify you? I'm speaking on your behalf. What do I say on your behalf to the people of God? It is with that kind of fear and trembling I approached you on this subject. And it's with that kind of fear that I remind you, a healthy fear. Remember, the Bible says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. That's the healthy fear that I present to you that everyone has a chance to be they'd be saved and so if you're looking in online or you're here today do just what we talked about I'm a sinner God I believe that Jesus took my judgment and my punishment save me right now now if you made that decision online please let us know make a comment in the comment section we'll get some material to you someone will call you if you're here today after the service tell one of us and we'll be sure to get with you what the next step is and if you have prayer, always remember, some people may feel a little intimidated about coming down the aisle and, and talking. After the service, get with us, and we'll be sure to pray with you. At this time, we're going to continue to worship God for a few moments. Will you join me in that worship, please? Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If this has blessed you, would you consider giving a financial gift to help bring this message to more people? You can do that at vlcministries.com give. You can also subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Here's what we believe, living God's way, everywhere, every way, every day. We love you and God bless.